Welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy, the podcast that empowers you to transform life's challenges into opportunities for personal growth and healthier relationships. We're your hosts, Tim and Ruth Olson, licensed marriage and family therapists and trauma experts. As experienced therapists with backgrounds in addressing trauma and mental health disorders, we believe there is hope and there certainly is healing. We've spent our lives supporting people through the ups and downs, and we want to share these insights with you. Together, we'll unravel the layers of personal growth healing from trauma, and building healthy relationships. Each week, we'll bring you engaging conversations, expert insights, and practical strategies to help you heal from the past, foster healthy communication, and develop enduring love. This podcast is your guide to transforming adversity into triumph, healing wounds and past trauma, gaining wisdom and insight, and creating meaningful, fulfilling connections. So if you're here to heal, to better understand yourself or your relationships, you're in the right place. So sit back, get comfortable, bring your trauma and your drama, and let's start healing. Welcome Welcome to to Mr. and Mrs. Mrs. Therapy. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy podcast. We're so glad that you're here with us today. If you've been following along, you know that this month we're celebrating our one-year anniversary. And we're so thankful for each one of you who have listened and shared our podcast with others. And we really do want to get this message out to people who really need it and could benefit from it. So we're doing a giveaway right now. So if you're not already in our Facebook group, go ahead and jump over there and be sure that you enter. So for the giveaway, basically, we want you to share this podcast with someone else. Just share the link to the show. Or if there's a specific episode that you think would be helpful go ahead and share that. And then you're going to take a screenshot of that share. So whether it was a text message on social media, messenger, any of those, you're just going to screenshot that you shared it and you're going to post it over in our Facebook group under the thread for the correct week. And like we said, we're so thankful for each of you who have listened and shared. So today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. What we're going to be doing is reviewing a vignette, which is basically a little story And these vignettes are going to be centered and focused on trauma and how trauma can affect how we think and perceive and experience the world around us. And so as we go through this, we want you guys to keep in mind this idea of trauma and that it really can be a very pervasive thing and it can affect you in many more ways than you think it can. And even things that can start off as something that's seemingly good based on how we receive that information can actually cause it to be something very negative to us. I always like to tell my clients when we're working through trauma with EMDR that it doesn't matter whether this memory should or shouldn't feel bad. All I care about is that it does. And so in this first vignette we're going to read, it has that perfect example where it starts off with something that seems to be good, but then the way that the person in this vignette interpreted that information causes it to actually be a trauma to them. So when we're reviewing this vignette, it's going to be broken up into three sections. The beginning of trauma, which we're going to start at about eight years old. Then it's going to jump up to 20 years old, how it might manifest at 20 years old. And then we're going to jump another 20 years past that, how it might manifest if you were 40 years old. Age eight. Little Sammy, with bright eyes and even a brighter smile, stood on his tiptoes to pin the drawing to the fridge. It was a proud moment, one further magnified when his parents gleamed with pride and said, Our little artist, always perfect. In school, Sammy became known for his meticulous coloring, staying well within the lines. Every project had to be just right, leading to late nights and tears over the smallest of perceived errors. Teachers praised his attention to detail, and peers often marveled. Sammy never makes mistakes. But for Sammy, every praise felt like another weight, 
another expectation he had to live up to. So when you look at this, the parents had every good intention, right? They're trying to lift him up and praise him. But for him, that began to set an expectation that he set up really for himself because he saw the praise that he got for doing so well. And toward the end of it, he talks about the weight that was put on him. But initially, it doesn't start as a weight. Initially, it starts as, oh man, this feels really good, both for himself and for his parents. He sees how much it pleases his parents, and he likes that praise. But over time, that expectation becomes more intense for him. And what initially was a good thing now becomes a burden for him. And I think this is such an easy thing to do as a parent because in their eyes, they were super impressed and they just want to praise him. Another thing that parents will tell their kids in moments like this is, oh my gosh, you're so smart and that's wonderful. And those are great praises that you're giving your child. But depending on who your child is, they can either just take that praise for what it is at the face value, or then they can set this expectation up for themselves. And one of the things I want to warn you guys about when you're listening to this is, not to be hyper worried about traumatizing your kids because there's going to be things where like in this vignette where you have zero intent, but then they're still hurt by it. But then there's plenty of times where I'll have parents who they bring their kids in to get EMDR and they're like, oh, this happened and I'm so certain this damaged my child. Can you please help fix them? And then I'm talking to the child about the situation and they're like, yeah, that really doesn't bother me. Actually, this thing over here bothers me so much more than that one does. So when we're talking about these things, don't get too caught up or too overly worried about it. But there are some things that I think we can learn through this. I remember a couple of years ago, we learned about this research study where they tried to identify how different praises affect the child's behavior when it comes down to schoolwork. And so they took two groups of kids and they kind of arbitrarily split them down the middle. And one group of kids, they said, you are the smart kids. And another group of kids, they said, you are the hardworking kids. And then what they did is they gave the kids progressively more difficult tasks to complete. The kids could either choose to continue working on those tasks, or they could choose to stop working at it at any point. And what they found was the kids who were told that they were the smart kids ended up calling it quits much earlier than the kids they called the hardworking kids. And what they ended up coming to the conclusion was the problem was that the kids who were told that they were the smart ones, when the task got harder and harder, they became afraid to lose the moniker of being the smart one. And so then they would choose now not to do that task instead so that they wouldn't be found out as not a smart kid if they couldn't complete the task. But the other kids who were told that they were the hardworking kids, they just continued to work and it didn't matter if they weren't able to do the task correctly, they still were able to keep the title of hardworking as long as they just continued to do the task. And I definitely know looking at my life, some people that I have known who have been extremely intelligent people, but then oftentimes what happens is they end up not really applying themselves in school. And a part of the reason is because they get to a point where it gets kind of hard and then they don't want to lose that title. So then they really stop working. I remember some of the smartest people I knew in high school didn't achieve a lot academically. And I think a part of the reason why is because of the fear of losing that title of being the smart kid. And so going off of that research study about you're so smart versus you're such a hard worker, there are a lot of things that you can say to really encourage your child in different ways. So you could say something like, I can see you really tried hard on that, or you never gave up even when it was hard, or I love how you took ownership of that. Or if it's something that they've been working on, you can say, I can see that you've really been working on speaking kindly to your sister. So you're really acknowledging the effort they're putting in and the progress they're making, knowing that they don't have to be perfect 
before they can receive the praise. Or if they've done something that they were afraid of, acknowledging that I know that you were afraid or I know that you were a little scared, but I really saw how you decided to get out there anyway. Or I saw how you chose to be brave and do it anyway, even though you're afraid. And just a side note about that, we like to tell our kids that it's okay to be afraid. Being brave doesn't mean you're never afraid, but in the midst of that fear, you exhibit courage. And I know that we've shared this quote before, but in the book series, The Green Ember by S.D. Smith, it has this brief conversation. It says, Heather, I think you're very brave. What you did today out there in the storm took courage. All of life is a battle against fear. We fight it on one front, and it sneaks around to our flank. He paused, looked kindly at her, and she said, Yes, Father, I understand. And he continued on, I regret many things I've done, but most of all, I regret those moments when I said to fear, You are my master. And so even that, our wording is very important making sure that we're not focusing on to be brave, you can't be afraid. But in the face of fear, you are still choosing to be courageous and you're still choosing to do the right thing. And it's the same idea with perfection. We're not focusing on just the outcome that you have to be perfect, but it's the effort that you put into it and the perseverance and the diligence that you apply. I think another thing to be aware of is that Perfectionism definitely is a cruel taskmaster because you have very high expectations, but very little reward. And what I mean by that is that when you have this high expectation of perfectionism, even if you achieve it, when you have that negative belief system of I have to be perfect, the feeling or sensation you get when you do achieve that is, well, that's what I should have done anyways. So the level of happiness or appreciation or enjoyment that you actually get from achieving that goal is very little. Versus if in a different way, you have a high goal, you're like, hey, I really would like to do good on this, but you don't have that expectation of perfectionism. You have the expectation of I'm going to do the best that I can. And then you do achieve, hey, I did a good job. I achieved. Then you can feel the benefit of accomplishing that high goal. But it's that expectation of perfectionism really can steal a lot of happiness and joy from you. And so when we go back to our story where we're talking about for Sammy here is that Now he's coloring in the lines, he's getting a lot of praises, but he's not as likely to get very much emotional benefit. And what we're going to see here is when we jump over to now 20 years old, is that the standard and the desire to be perfect is going to expand into more and more areas. Age 20. In college, Sam's perfectionism took on a new guise. No longer just about coloring within the lines, it was about maintaining a perfect GPA being the president of two clubs and the captain of the debate team. Friends loved his parties because everything was planned to the T. Yet behind the laughter and music, there were hours of meticulous planning, lists cross-checked multiple times, and anxiety about the smallest deviations. Relationships suffered as Sam struggled with the idea of being perfect in them. A single argument with a friend or a minor disagreement with a girlfriend would lead to spiraling thoughts of inadequacy. Now, as we can see here, it's not just about the coloring between the lines, but now it's expanded to so many more things. And a major problem with this is that it does bring this crushing anxiety because the more you try to be perfect, the more you realize that you are not perfect. And the more, especially if you're struggling with perfectionism, the more you realize that you're not perfect, the more awful that you feel because you do have that expectation of perfectionism. And when you're struggling with perfectionism, it does always seem to expand well, this person's doing this, so if I want to be perfect, I got to do that as well. 
oh, well, somebody else is president of a club. Well, then now I need to be president of two because I need to be perfect. If other people can accomplish this, that means that I could do more. And there's this concept or idea of what's called diminishing returns, where you can put more and more effort into something. But at a certain point, the more effort you put in, you're actually getting less and less benefit from that. So let's say if you're trying to study for a test and you study for three hours and studying for three hours is going to get you a B. And then the next three hours you study might then move you from a B to an A. But that first amount of studying got you so much more of a greater benefit but then you studied the exact same additional amount of time, but now it's only moving you up a little bit more or a little bit further. People who are perfectionistic really struggle with this is that they don't see that diminishing return. They're more like, oh, well, any amount of benefit I could additionally squeeze out of this, I'm going to squeeze out of it. So I'm not just shooting for an A, I'm shooting for an A+. Well, now we're going from maybe six hours of studying to get an A to 9, 10, 11, 12 to make sure that you get 100% on that test. And so you're doubling the amount of time, but you're dramatically diminishing the actual benefits you're getting from that. And in relationships, you can really see how it affected them because he's not allowed to be himself. He's not allowing himself to be genuine and have anyone where he can truly just relax around. But he always feels like he has to show up. And even when he does show up, like Tim said, it's never good enough. And so that's a lot of weight to hold on yourself. And then there's overthinking that happens where if there's one mess up or if there's a deviation, he begins to overthink what he could have done better or should have done better or what the other person is thinking about him. And it could be where he starts to project onto other people his own fear of failing and his own thoughts of failure, even though the other people around him think he's awesome and think, oh man, he goes above and beyond. Even when it doesn't show up as perfect, they still see how great it was. But for him, it really is this all or nothing thing where if I'm not perfect, oh man, I really failed. And what you can run into a lot of times too are cognitive distortions when you're struggling with perfectionism, where nobody's expecting Sam to be perfect, but Sam is going to believe and think other people expect him to be perfect. And then even if he talks to people about it and they say, oh, no, 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 that, that's good enough. You don't have to do any more. That cognitive distortion is going to make him think those people are being dishonest with him, that of course they want me to be perfect. They're just saying that to be nice, but really they're going to be disappointed if I'm not perfect. And that's that projection. Sammy himself is going to feel disappointed if he's not perfect, but then putting that off onto other people believing they think the same way that he does. And I can certainly relate to this. I know that in college, I was away from home and I know that I was having a really hard time at one point, but I still felt like I had to hold it all together. And I remember crying in my dorm room and my RA came in and another friend came in and I was just crying and I was like, I'm okay, it's okay. And at that point, that's when I learned it's okay to not be okay. And I can see that so vividly, just me crying and trying to assure everyone else around me that I'm okay and things are good. And yet not truly allowing myself to feel like, you know, this is a really hard time. There was a lot of things that were going on at that time, but I still felt like I had to be okay and I had to be perfect. And so in undergrad, that's when I learned it's okay to not be okay. And then in graduate school, one of the things that I really had to work on is I strive for excellence, not perfection. Because I remember staying up and doing papers that took other people, I don't know, an hour and a half to two hours to do. It took me like eight to 10 hours because I would sit there and I would have to make sure that I read everything or 
I looked at all these different sources to make sure that there wasn't anything that I was missing. And then I'd write the paper and I'd rewrite the paper. And I think there are multiple factors playing in here. I think it was certainly perfectionism, maybe some ADHD happening, maybe some distractions around me. But I just remember not being able to turn it in unless I double-checked and double-checked. And then if I found another source where I thought, oh man, I didn't read this. And I felt like I didn't know enough. And so there was always something else I had to learn before I could complete this paper. And it was exhausting. And so this is where I really had to put into place and learn the importance of striving for excellence, but not perfection. Because I still want to be excellent in things. I want to honor God by doing things with excellence and doing everything unto the Lord. But I have to realize that my goal isn't perfection. My goal is to finish a task, whatever it is, with excellence. And I think a really great example of how you shifted your mindset was when we were getting married, you had this idea of the goal at the end of today is to be married. And I remember that mindset allowed you to be very comfortable and okay with anything that might have gone wrong during the wedding day, because the goal is to get married, not to have a perfect wedding day. Yeah. So I remember thinking if the flowers are all in the wrong place, or if this happens, or if I trip, it's all okay. At the end of the day, I want to get married. Which was especially helpful for me because I messed up the ceremony a little (laughs) bit. Her dad was actually our officiant. And I thought he had missed the part where he was supposed to tell us to kiss each other. And so I kind of like interrupted him and let him know. And then later on, he ran into the part where we were actually supposed to kiss. And so even though that little kerfuffle happened in the midst of the ceremony, it wasn't a major problem. It didn't cause any issue between us because we weren't having this set expectation that today needs to go perfect. Today is going to be exactly what we want it to be if at the very end of the day, we're married at the end. And I think it added character and looking back humor to that day. And it's a great memory for us. We got to kiss twice in the ceremony. And especially when you're struggling with perfectionism, it really is very hard to do everything because if you're spending all that time trying to make sure something is perfect, it's very hard to do other things in addition. But especially with that perfectionism, you're drawn to doing additional things because that is viewed more as I got to do this to be perfect. I remember my experience in college was kind of very different because I had a much more pragmatic approach. I didn't have a lot of time to do schoolwork because I was also in athletics. And so for me, I really focused on my major core psychology classes, but I didn't care very much about my extracurricular or my non-core classes because I just didn't have the time to put in tons and tons of time and effort into making sure I got A's in those classes. I was absolutely totally fine with getting a B. Wasn't so fine with getting a C, but it would be acceptable to me as long as my core psychology classes, I was getting A's in those. And it was just a practical thing. I didn't have time to. Or even sometimes I'd be willing to get not such a great grade on my first exam because then I would analyze that first exam and figure out where did this teacher get this information from so that I know how to study efficiently next time. And so then after that, I would figure out the pattern and I would study what the professor took the information from to ensure that I could be very efficient with that studying and get a high grade. Yeah, I think I had the opposite problem because I was trying to be so perfectionistic. It wasn't very efficient. And maybe not in my undergrad, but definitely in my master's program, I did tons of all-nighters. Versus for me, I think I only ever pulled one all-nighter in my undergrad and master's class combined. And it was my senior year. I was really overbooked with my classes. 
I got some bad advice from a student advisor. It made me really pay my senior year. But then that was the only time I'd ever done it. And as a matter of fact, I think that was the first time I ever had to actually drink coffee because I was kind of running on fumes at the end of my senior year. So let's look at how this is affecting Samuel at age 40. So at 40, Samuel stood at the pinnacle of his career, a corner office, accolades lining the wall, and a team that looked up to him. But the shadow of perfectionism lingered. Business proposals took weeks because they had to be error-free. He dreaded team meetings, fearing his ideas would be anything less than groundbreaking. At home, his children felt the weight of his expectations. A B on a report card would lead to hours of tutoring. Family vacations were orchestrated like military operations. Every detail planned. The spontaneity of life, the joy in little imperfections seemed lost. So now we're shifting from 20 years old to 40 years old, and now we can see the perfectionism has expanded again. Now the perfectionism is not just on Sam himself, but now Samuel is projecting this perfectionism onto those people who are around him. And now those people around him are suffering because of his perfectionism, because of his inability to be flexible or to roll with the punches. And even though he doesn't mean to have it affect the people around him, especially his family or his children, that level of stress and the expectations that he has, it's inevitable that it will bleed over into these other relationships. And a part of the deal with this is that Samuel at age 40 is now thinking that this is what his family wants. They want this perfectionism. But oftentimes he's going to run into experiences where it's like, why doesn't anybody care as much as I do? Why isn't anybody putting in the effort that they should to get these things to come out perfectly? And the truth is because they don't care. They don't care that much about it because they are not damaged in the same way that he is. They don't have that feeling or that urge or that desire for perfectionism. But then again, Samuel is going to be projecting his own desires onto his family members around him or even his teammates at work. Why are people not putting in this effort? And the truth is because they don't care as much. They don't have to or feel a need to be perfect. They're just okay with what's happening now. We don't have to go into this vacation with a military operation. We can just go in and just kind of figure it out and roll with the punches as we go along or have a general loose guideline of what we want to do and then work at accomplishing that or shift if we choose to do something else. But that perfectionism is going to say, whatever I planned at the beginning has to be what happens in the middle and has to be what happens at the end. There shall be no deviation. Otherwise, everything is going to be an utter failure. And it might even be that they want the opposite of what they're seeing him do. So Tim was saying that maybe they don't even care and they don't want it perfect. I would even say that maybe even his kids seeing the expectations and the perfectionism and they're going the extreme opposite and saying, I don't want any of that because I can see the misery it's causing and the struggle that it's causing. And so I'm going to be the exact opposite of that. And so I do think that sometimes we learn from our family members. I can see it in clients often where they come in and they talk about the trauma that they've experienced and they talk about the type of parenting they've had or the type of relationships they've had. And they're like, I want nothing to do with that. I don't want to resemble that at all. And so they swing to the other extreme. And I don't think people who struggle with perfectionism mean harm. They think they're doing good and benefiting those people who are around them. But really, the people who are in the midst of this, they're not seeing how everything's working out in this nice way. What they're feeling is controlled and overburdened by this unattainable goal. And really what perfectionism does is it steals joy. 
because you're constantly trying to reach perfection, which is impossible. Maybe you can be perfect in one specific area or you can do one thing perfect. But when you look at your life overall, you're not going to be perfect. And so this is an unattainable, impossible goal that then really weighs down and causes so much stress and makes you unhappy and steals your joy. And so in every phase of his life, perfectionism manifested differently. But there was a common theme where it was just this incessant pressure, a relentless pursuit, often at the cost of joy and genuine connection. Yeah, I think a lot of times when I'm working with clients who are perfectionistic, they are oftentimes wearing a mask because they want everybody outside to perceive them as perfect as well. And they think that if they're not projecting this perfect persona, that they'll be rejected by everybody around them. I always like to ask people who are struggling with perfectionism, do you have anybody in your life who knows everything about you, who knows all your dark little secrets and has been kind of with you through thick and thin? And the majority of the time, people have at least one person that they can point to. And I ask them this question. I say, so they know everything about you and they've still accepted you and they're still friends with you or they're still a loved one for you. And then I ask this follow-up question, how does that relationship feel to you compared to all the other ones? And they're like, oh, it's it's the best relationship I can imagine. It's so valuable to me. And I always like to ask this question, hey, how would you like to have two or three more people like that in your life? And they will oftentimes say, oh, I would give just about anything to do that. And I say, the reason why you feel so close to this person is because they know who you really are and they've accepted you. The only way to get more people like that in your life is to really let people in, take off that mask of perfectionism, let people see who you really are. The scary thing is you might be rejected by some people, but the amount of people you get rejected by will be pale in comparison to if you get a couple more of these positive, really deep connected relationships with people who really know who you are. And then you'll have this wonderful, amazing support system with this group of people. And that's a very hard thing for people in general to do, especially people who are struggling with perfectionism. But really, that is the only way to have these deep connections. But if you continue to put that mask on, hoping that people will accept you because of your perfectionism, the downside to that is you yourself know they're accepting what you're projecting, not who you actually are. They're accepting this facade that you're putting on. And so even when people really like the mask that you've put on, you yourself aren't actually receiving the emotional psychological benefit of having this deep connection with them because you know that's not really who you are. And so when we look at the self-talk and the negative beliefs that they're saying to themselves again and again, it really is this idea of, I have to be perfect. I have to please everyone. I can't be myself. I can't make a mistake. And so these negative cognitions and these negative beliefs all throughout Sammy's life at the different ages and stages. But it really is that same idea of, I have to be perfect. I have to please everyone. And that's really how trauma works, where it's something that we experience. And then it begins to broaden out to different areas of our life. And these beliefs or these negative cognitions that we believe begin to get wrongly applied to different situations where now what was maybe beneficial or had good intentions initially really caused harm and is not allowing them the freedom that they'd have if they didn't feel this pressure of having to be perfect all the time or having to always please everyone else. So if you're really struggling with perfectionism, it's a difficult task to be able to manage that and to be able to overcome that. But one of the things is truly trying to come to an acceptance that I don't have to be perfect. Nobody's expecting me to be perfect. And as a matter of fact, 
trying to be perfect is going to negatively impact other areas of my life. And then working at shifting your mindset from I have to be perfect to I want to be excellent or I want to do excellent, right? My goal is to be excellent, but my expectation is not perfection. And I know that can feel like splitting hairs a little bit, but setting a high goal, there is the understanding I may not achieve this goal, but I'm going to shoot for it. Setting the expectation of perfectionism is I'm expecting to hit that. If I don't hit that, I'm a disappointment. Shifting your mindset even a little bit away from that can help alleviate your discomfort of being perfect. And then on top of that, I think a deeper dive into EMDR and actually working through this issue is a very important thing because especially if you've been dealing with perfectionism for 20 or 30 years, it's a deeply seated and rooted negative belief system that really has deep roots in your life. And it's not easy to remove that and getting extra assistance with that can make it a much easier process. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. And remember, your mind is a powerful thing. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode and found it helpful. If so, would you take 30 seconds and share it with a friend? Also, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. It lights us up to know that this podcast is helping you. If you have any questions or a topic you'd like discussed in future episodes, visit our Facebook group. Just click the link in the description below. Although we are mental health providers, this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide diagnosis or treatment. If you are struggling with persistent mental health issues, chronic marital issues, or feeling hopeless or suicidal, you are not alone. Help is available. Please seek professional help or call the National Suicide Hotline at 988. Thank you again for joining us on Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. Remember, there's always hope and there's always help.